Welcome to the Aging Gracefully Podcast. I'm Janae Anderson. And I'm Mary Thompson. Join us as we explore the myths, beliefs, and realities of aging to empower each of us to thrive on all levels, every moment of our lives. Janae, have you ever heard of the Blue Zones? The Democratic Regions? No, 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 no. The Blue Zones are areas of the world discovered by or explored by I guess is a better term Dan Buettner and National Geographic and the blue zones are places there's five in the world where people live considerably longer than everybody else how much longer well they're talking about a good percentage of the population lives to be over 100 wow whereas our lifespan in the U.S. right now is hitting 78 79 so these people are getting an extra 20 years of life 20 years of healthy life healthy life thank you because I'm sitting here going well I don't want to live that long but if you can be healthy and happy and vital okay right because they live all the way up until they don't you know it's like having that vitality and interactions and you can if you want explore what the, where the blue zones are, go online. It's just called Blue Zones, and Dan Buettner is the man who's done quite a bit of writing about it. But what we want to focus on today is there are nine principles that they found permeated the lifestyles of these blue zones. Ah. And so we can talk about those and see, could I be incorporating some of these blue zone practices and maybe eke out a few extra years of health and vitality beyond my 78.2 that's afforded me by living in the U.S. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's do it. How do we start? Well, let's pick one. Let's see. What is one of the... So these are kind of the nine practices. They're what are called... Dan Buettner, of course, calls them the Power Nine Principles. So let's explore these principles. One of them is how they move. That they they move move naturally. So many of us, our lives are busy and we're going to the gym. Mm-hmm. But these people are just incorporating movement throughout the course of their day. So they don't lead the sedentary lifestyles that we tend to lead. Right. One of the things I read was that they tend to have fewer conveniences, which made me very sad when I thought of giving up my dishwasher or <laughs> my electric lawnmower mm-hmm. uh, for the walking, or if I'm a golfer, maybe walking instead of riding the golf cart. These were things that they just worked movement into their day. They didn't train they didn't take a break from anything else to go move but then I think about how am I going to do this Mm -hmm. the other day my husband and I went to our course of love meeting and the parking lot was full because another meeting was happening so we it was pouring rain and we had to park all the way across the street and you know a, a little ways away and I was thinking well this is so inconvenient and I did my mind did go to what people who move naturally must do I mean you make life a little less convenient and it turned out to be a lovely little walk in the rain right that that I thoroughly mm-hmm. enjoyed so yeah. it's funny how we, we tend to gravitate toward the comforts but there's a lot of joy to be found in the less Convenient comforts. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to, for, to do things like that, to park a little further away, to think about, are there things that I could walk to? If I'm at one store, I could easily walk to the next one instead of driving over to the next parking lot and walk a little bit back. So finding ways, so that's something I could do. I could work more movement into my day. So could I. I spend a lot of time on the computer. My work is mostly based on the internet, and so I spend a lot of time there. 
I think one of the things I try to do is to take breaks, like 15 minutes out of every hour is an active 15 minutes so that I'm not sitting for three hours and then thinking, oh, no, I'll walk for 20 minutes. You know, I've been doing that lately, too. I've been taking little yoga breaks. Mm -hmm. So instead of having a longer practice in the morning sometimes, I'll just work intensely sitting on my butt for an hour, and then I'll get up and take 10, 15 minutes of doing yoga. And when I come back, I am so refreshed, body, mind, and soul. And I think that way, at the end of the day, you still feel some energy. Yeah. So that's one thing we can do. I like that idea of moving more naturally and finding ways to move, I think, is for me really important. Me I have too. to look into that. And you know, you think about even something as simple as gardening is mm-hmm. movement. Right. Housework is movement. Mm-hmm. Housework. I've heard people speak of that. <laughs> it's, it's not a word I'm familiar with. <laughs> well, take it from me. When you're vacuuming, the layers start to come off because you're really working up some body heat. Mm-hmm. I remember having surgery one time and they told me I couldn't vacuum for six weeks. And, and I thought... Really, it's that, it's that much effort, but I guess it, it is. I guess it is. Mm-hmm. Okay, how about another? What's another one of these nine principles? Well, let's see here. It says, have a life purpose. Wow. They don't, they don't mess around. Just jump to know your purpose, know why you're here, and yeah. do that. Have something that wakes you up in the morning that you're excited to do. I do know the mornings when I have something to do, something I'm looking forward to or something that really is aligned with why I feel I'm alive, I jump out of bed and it doesn't matter. I don't need the alarm to go off and I don't need, I don't look at it and say, oh, thank God, it's only six. I can sleep another half hour. You know, I just get going. It's like, yes, today holds purpose. Today holds meaning. Yeah, those those are wonderful mornings, aren't they? Great mm-hmm. way to start off the day. Yeah. Yeah, so I wonder what kind of purpose, you know, these older people have. Well, I think that they never let go of their life's purpose. So one of the things I see in the U.S. is that our older population, they retire and they golf or they go fishing or that's kind of the vision. They may may or may not do that. But I think so often they miss having something to do and some meaning of life. I I look at this as feeling like you're earning your place at the table. Mm. And when I'm not engaged actively with my work or my community or in some way feeling that I have a reason to be. So I think what it is is maybe not that they have a specific life purpose where they wake up and say, I am a gardener, but they wake up knowing that their life has value and that what they're, whatever they're doing brings value to the table. It's a, earns them a space at the table. Got it. I mean, we don't live in those extended family kind of situations anymore, but I'm going to bet that, there they do still, at least to some extent. And so mm-hmm. you do, you feel important if you're looking after the grandkids or you're doing the housework while mom and dad are out doing what they need to do. You have a place, you have a role and a responsibility. Roles and responsibility are so important to feel like we have reason. Yeah. That's not to say that vacations aren't nice sometimes, too. (laughs) It's nice to take off that role and responsibility. So if I want to think of how I might incorporate this, I like the idea that your purpose may or may not be what you're doing as a job. It may be something else that you like to do that you find meaning in. Yes. The Japanese have a word for it. It's called... Ikigai. 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 That's how I've heard it pronounced, but apologies to any Japanese listeners because our Japanese is probably abysmal. It's it's defined as a driving force. A driving force. Yeah. 
So finding where your passion meets your purpose, meets your capabilities, your competencies. Yeah, that which drives you. Mm-hmm. That yeah, that where your passion meets as you say, your capabilities and yeah. I wonder if there is if by reflecting on those activities that we might engage in where we lose a sense of time that we so are present in this moment while we're engaged in it that we don't look at the clock every few seconds to see how much longer do I have to do this. I love those times Mm -hmm. and I feel that I can incorporate those more and more into my life and it's funny you should say that because I am actively doing that. Mm -hmm. I've actively been working with um, dissolving a sense of time. Wow. Yeah and just being much more mindful in whatever I'm doing and so I love how they actually define this as a force. You know, you think about mm-hmm. there's there's the force of momentum and the force of habit and various other forces. And this too, this is a driving force, this sense of purpose and motivation. Mm-hmm. So building that in one's life sounds very important. See, I think uncovering, what is it that I'm doing that is not that? And yes. how could I do that, not that, less? <laughs> I didn't <laughs> and make do much, what is didn't that make, more? <laughs> exactly. I don't, it makes no grammatical sense, but just kind of looking at those areas that don't serve me and allowing them to get less of my attention and finding those times and energies and activities that do serve me and giving them more of my attention. Yeah. Sounds really good. Mm-hmm. What's another one, Mary? Well, here they call it downshifting, but it's taking time to rest sometime during the day. I see this so common. They mention here meditating, napping, praying, even enjoying a happy hour in moderation. But recognizing that we are humans be human beings, not human doing, right? So we've got, we do, and then we recover. Then we prepare, and we do, and we recover. And I think we've become a society that does and doesn't prepare for, doesn't recover from. You know, the alarm goes off, I'm out the door, and then I work, 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 and then I come home, and I'm exhausted, and I've got to, you know, so I don't get that chance to really recover. But if we looked at our day kind of as this ebb and flow, this, what they were finding in a lot of these places that were in the blue zones is people took a siesta. Oh, the siesta. They took that time in the you afternoon to just chill out. You know, people who nap regularly have up to 35% lower chances of dying from heart disease. Nice. Yeah, for two nice. reasons the, the experts say. One is that it just decreases your stress. Mm-hmm. And te- second, which is kind of tied in, it gives your heart a chance to rest. Mm-hmm. So sometimes, even if I don't feel sleepy, I go and I just lie down for yeah. 15 minutes. I'm saying just take and rest in the afternoon. Yeah. And it could be meditation for those who like meditation. This is a great time of day between 2 and 6 to meditate. Yeah. You know, and that could be just for 20 minutes. You're not meditating for the whole four hours, but finding a time in there to take care of yourself. And that could have the form of a deep relaxation, too. A guided mm-hmm. deep relaxation is a lovely way to check out and, and de-stress. Right. Um, I know in Sardinia, that's in Italy, mm-hmm. um, the men in the Blue Zone region gather in the street every afternoon and they laugh at each other. <laughs> <laughs> Something a thick skin is a part of this as well. <laughs> You know, laughter reduces stress, Mm -hmm. right? Right. Yeah. The other thing that occurs to me is if I don't rest in the afternoon, I'm more likely to want some kind of stimulant in the form of sugar, caffeine, or something else. 
And these don't really support my heart health. They don't really support me other than kind of getting me through that time period, that little lag time. I agree. I, th- I think that this is especially true of us women. Mm-hmm. Somehow we tend to gravitate f- to for the, the unhealthy food or drink just to get us through. As I, I don't know what men do. I don't know men, how men get through that. <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah, for us, getting that external rather than recharging internally, mm-hmm. um, we've got to shift that balance. Now, I want to talk about cigarettes. Okay. When I worked full-time, I was always a little envious of those who would step out the door and take 10 minutes to smoke a cigarette. And usually, a mob of them did it together. And they talked and they laughed as they inhaled. And I always thought, I wish there was a non-cigarette break that I could take. Mm-hmm. It's funny how, I don't know if it is anymore, but it was definitely a part of the culture. Well, as I recall, it's actually a part of the, in California, it's part of the state workers code that if you are a cigarette smoker, you get, well, I think everybody gets these 15 minute breaks, two hours, but part of it was getting out there and and doing it. And the cigarette smokers are the ones who are going to go ahead and make sure they take their break. Yeah. And that's a good point because you got a break from work. You got social time. You had a little bit of downtime. So it's, it's got all these benefits that would make it hard, I think, to quit. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I would think so, yeah. Um, so you talked once about a friend of yours who liked to blow bubbles, and she right. would go hang out with the smokers and blow bubbles. <laughs> right, because she said that, you know, they didn't have a rule at her work that people who didn't smoke could do, go take breaks, so she created an, an addiction <laughs> for herself <laughs> that she saw as more healthful. But it was it does bring up a good point that if we're looking at downshifting throughout the day, and especially in that afternoon time when... We're a little bit leggy in energy, and we want to restore energy. Yeah, to, to find something or several somethings. Um, it's a lovely form of self-care. Yes, I agree. And I can do that. I, I will confess. I'll confess right here on radio. I'm a napper. I take a 20-minute power nap. I don't even know if it's a power nap. It's just a great... I, I love it. My mother used to nap, and I've, I've kind of internalize this notion that women as we get older we love napping so so that gives me how much a 35 percent less chance of heart disease yes it does congratulations yeah thank you I'm, I'm, that's what i'll look at it as now it's actually medicated it's a prescription nap <laughs> yeah i love that prescription nap okay the 80 percent rule is another one mm. that's I've, I've heard that really often that under eating is far healthier than overeating. Right. Know, so the eighty percent rule being that you stop eating, you walk away from the table when you are eighty percent full. Do you do this, Mary? Yeah. Well, Ayurveda has a little trick where you watch and see. There's a little tiny burp that comes up when you hit the seventy-five percent mark when you're just about three quarters full, because what your stomach wants is to have enough space so it can churn the food. So I watch for that. The trick is this is where every everything in life becomes simple but not easy. If I really like what I'm eating, it's hard to stop when I recognize it. And if I don't like what I'm eating, it's easy to say, oh, yes, I don't, I'm sorry, I can't take any more. I've hit that 80%. But the thing that has been really beneficial about it for me is I began to recognize what volume of food is the right amount for my stomach. So now I make better choices in putting food on my plate. I'm better able to assess this is going to be about the right amount of food. Oh, that's really interesting. Right. So I I can watch for that. I have a friend who lost, I don't know, 40, 50 pounds. And when I asked him how he did it, he said 
he realized that he had a habit of eating until he felt a certain amount of fullness. And so he changed that habit, and voila, the pounds melted off of him. Interesting. Yeah, because if we wait to feel like the stretch response in the stomach, we're, this, the stomach's going to get bigger and make it so we can accommodate more food, and now we're waiting for that stretch response. And that's why you see people who can eat huge amounts of food because they've enlarged the stomach beyond its original capacity. Wow. So it's it's interesting. So I like that one. That's that's an Ayurvedic rule too. Although we cut it at 75%. So now I get myself an extra 5%. <laughs> I don't like that one so much. I think I'm going to have to work with that one because I, I like the sense of feeling full at mm-hmm. my meal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll have to take yeah. that one into consideration. I think some of these can be tricky, especially looking at um, cultural and social norms. Yeah. So on the subject of food... The fifth point is a plant slant. Oh, having mostly plant-based diet. Yes. You know, that again comes up so much in research. There's some wonderful, one of my favorite uh, movies on this topic was called Forks Over Knives, and it was done by a couple of cardio surgeons who grew up on farms and discovered that the, the meat and dairy rich, rich diet was actually causing a lot of their clients heart disease, and they really expound on a vegan approach. And see it resolve heart disease. Wow. It does seem that the closer to nature I eat, the better I feel. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean I don't like the occasional slice of meat or whatever, but mm-hmm. um, just the slant toward the plant. Yeah. Well, that was the thing that it said with these blue zones is people did have meat once in a while. It was about once a week or so, about mm-hmm. four or five times a month. Um, but it wasn't the huge focus. I look at the American diet, and it's in the breakfast foods, it's in the lunch foods, it's in the dinner foods. So we may be getting just way too much. Maybe just looking on, I know one of the things now that's very popular is the idea of Meatless Mondays, but maybe trying that and see. I know that the purpose behind Meatless Mondays is supporting the environment, but it also supports the human environment. Yes, it does. Hmm. So that's something we can do too, eat more plants. Yeah, and if every single one of the longer living, vital living groups are doing that, that says something. It does. That they're eating mostly plants and they're living longer lives. And they're following these other things as well. Now this is one that's interesting because not everybody's going to be on board with this, but taking wine. having a, If I am not an alcoholic, so this would be a part of my ongoing, you know, it's possible... They have found that the people that live in these blue zones tend to engage in alcohol use unless they are a community that is strictly non-alcohol. And there is one in the blue zones, and that's the Seventh-day Adventists in Loma Linda, California. Right. Where they don't drink alcohol at all, mm-hmm. and yet there they are, longest living. So what, what do you say about that? I think it's there's something in wine, especially red wine, called resveratrol, which is a really great antioxidant, and it's being given all kinds of research for longevity, longevity studies. And you can get resveratrol from blueberries. You can get it from grapes. Um, there's an Indian herbal concoction called Chavan Prash, which is really high in resveratrol. So it may not be the wine. It may be the benefits of the constituents of the wine that you could still get whether you take the wine or not. I see. Mm -hmm. And you think about 
drinking wine. Okay, when you drink wine, it's usually a social occasion. You're kicking back. You've, often it's with dinner or after dinner or happy hour or whatever, but you're, you're with friends. You tend to be relaxed and happy and laughing. So it's got all those downshift benefits as well. Right. So maybe it's a second downshift you might do in the evening. So if I might do a downshift in the afternoon where I do my meditation, a little restorative yoga or a nap, and then again in the evening I might do a secondary downshift where I'm socializing with friends and relaxing. Because they're not talking about a lot of wine. They're talking about one to two glasses. And these are four-ounce glasses, not the huge ones you might find at the pottery bar. You know? <laughs> right. So it's little glasses, but it's to kind of relax, kick back, and then get the benefit of the resveratrol. Wow. Interesting. How about another one, Mary? Okay, let's see. Family first. Living in a thriving family. Mm. So, now... Many of us have small families, but it is looking at incorporating time with family, recognizing this is kind of our ground. And it's not only family, I think, because most of my family lives quite a distance away, but it's also family. It's, it's those friends who have become family. Mm -hmm. yeah, the family. Family, yes. Mm -hmm. So putting family first, making sure that those connections stay strong. Mm -hmm. For me, I'm always I'm looking at all of these as, how can I do this? How can I do this more? And I recognize that my family may take second when I look at my work or I look at the things that I'm doing throughout the course of a day. But I'll put a lot of time and energy and attention into what I'm doing with my clients. And I expect my family's going to get the same thing they got yesterday. And I don't know if I always put them first. If they're my, I do love them and they are my priority. But do I act as if they'll just always be there? So I'm going to have plenty of time later to put them first. But right now, this client across from me is the one that's more important. Wow, that's a good insight. I think uh, we could all look at that. Yeah, because it's we do want our families to be first. But do I behave in a way that um, that matters? Good point. And so I'm pointing fingers at myself here. It's something uh, I want to work on. Okay, here's one. Belonging. So this can be in a faith-based group or um, I guess it is slanted toward the faith-based kind of thing. So a, a, a religious group, a spiritual group, a, a group where you have that sense of the sacred um, that you I share with other like-minded Went to Catholic schools. And a few years ago, I got together with some friends from elementary school that I'd gone through kindergarten to eighth grade with at this Catholic school. And I was concerned because I hadn't seen some of them in 30 years. And I thought, oh my gosh, what are we even going to relate to each other? Are we even going to have the same values? And I wasn't sure how I would really deal with this whole weekend around people I hadn't seen in years and years and years. And it, it was so easy because we'd all come from the same place. We did have the same kind of attitudes and opinions and outlook on life. And so it became a really comfortable place to be. So I wonder if it's the faith base or if it's that similarity of, of background. You know, when people know you that well, that long, and you're coming from the same place, there was no arguments or discussions about how things were going to be or what we had to do. And I think when we go into different communities, there may be disparities. I think that's true. And I, I 
don't think it's one or the other. I think it's both and. I think mm -hmm. it's the bonding that happens as well as that like-minded um, sense of sacredness. Mm -hmm. I, I, as you know, I was in a spiritual community, lived there for 15 years, mm -hmm. and it's been more than that time that I've been out. But if I go back and visit, it's all right there, that deep sense of connection with everybody there, and, and I know they feel it too. So I think with this concept of a faith-based community, it's, you know, exploring that faith and taking it to its core and committing or meeting up with and communing with others that share your belief. Having deep conversations, meeting other people at a place where normal daily conversation doesn't go. Mm -hmm. I always enjoy it. I do a class out at a local yoga community and I always tell them it's one of my favorite classes to teach during the year because I can drop in at that level. I don't have to come in kind of gingerly and find out, am I not going to offend anybody with this next statement? You That's know, I... it. That's it, isn't it? It's being able to drop immediately into that deeper place. Mm -hmm. And we need that. It's very soul-fulfilling. Yes, I agree. And it's, obviously it does good work because in the blue zones, they're all connected through faith. And there's one more thing that we can start looking at incorporating. Having your right tribe, friends, social group. You know, we can't help but be influenced by others. But what we can do is consciously choose who's going to influence us. Right. So if you choose people who have healthy behaviors, and not just physically, but mentally, emotionally, spiritually, you can't help but be influenced by them. Right. I always think of, of friends like you've got your anytime friends. These are the ones that you can call anytime and they're always going to be there and uplift you in some way. They direct you back to your own purpose. And then there are the sometimes friends. And these are the ones that you can go out with sometimes and some of the times they uplift you and some of the times they don't. And some of the times they direct you back to your life purpose and some of the times they don't. And so it's one of those you have to kind of decide who do I need to talk to this anytime friend if I'm solving a problem, I want an anytime friend. But if I'm, you know, just going out having a good time, it could be a sometime friend. It's mm -hmm. not. And then there's the never friends. And this is the people that make me feel bad about myself. That if I'm talking to them, they're putting me down in some way. Or they're cr so critical, not in a constructive way, in a way that helps me to identify what I need to do, but in a very harsh, abusive way. Yeah, who needs that? Right. Those are the never friends. Yeah. Right. No time for that. And I think it's good to identify, for me, this is for me looking for my right tribe, it's good to identify when I've allowed those people that might be critical, judgmental, and harsh to take a larger role in my life because I want to feel good about myself and I'm going to get that from the other people that are helping me to grow and develop as a person. Not yeah. saying I'm perfect now and I don't do anything wrong, but will help me in my chosen path towards self-improvement. So much of being helped by others is not by what's said. So much more is caught than taught. Mm. So we see our friends go through trials or we see them grasp an opportunity and, and go for it. And all those little things um, in our tribe can make such a difference in our own being, mm -hmm. our own sense of what, what we can do, our own sense of worth, our own ways of approaching our own trials. Right. So this is something that I can do. I can take a look at my friendships and I can maximize those 
that feed me. I can spend more time socially with friends, include healthy, like-minded people. They may not be the same faith as me, but we can still relate to each other because we come from um, a supportive space. I think that's a huge part of it. Mm -hmm. So these have been nine ways that we can enhance our vitality and longevity. At least it works in the blue zones, and they're finding it can work anywhere. It seems to me that these are nine ways of living a happier life. Right. Happier and healthier. Right. And I, for one, want to start today. Happier, healthier, greater longevity. Sounds good. I'm with you there. (laughs) Terrific. This is Mary Thompson. And Janae Anderson signing off.